Have you uh, have you seen the Social Dilemma documentary on Netflix? Uh, if you haven't, I recommend it. It's it's fascinating, at least. I, I found it fascinating. I had a chance to watch it after watching it uh, earlier uh, last year. I knew we needed to spend some time and talk about some of the stuff at church. So over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be talking about social media, but we're going to be talking about so much more than that. Uh, this week, we're in, and and next week, we're going to spend some time uh, just doing a deep dive into uh, the ways in which we compare each other and get jealous and uh, what you know what of, of what other people have and today specifically we're going to talk about uh, look at how powerful influencers have over how we see ourselves uh, this is a this is true for social media, but it's true just in life in general. Um, and it's relevant uh, certainly for those who are on social media or not. Then we're going to also spend some time in the series talking about um, online addictions, how social media is designed to give us uh, pleasure. and uh, But we'll also spend some time briefly talking about some other online addictions. And then finally, we're going to spend uh, talk, time talking about the dangers of confirmation bias. We'll talk about what that is. And uh, more importantly, what does the Bible have to say about this thing called confirmation bias. So today we're going to look at the dangers of comparison and more specifically, the power of influencers. Now, comparison and its uh, evil cousins, jealousy and envy, are not unique to social media. I mean, thousands of years ago, in the formation of God's people, when, when God was giving them rules to define their community, we looked at one of those rules last week, if you remember, God listed out all of these rules, but he set apart 10 rules as kind of like the extra special rules, known as what we call the Ten Commandments. You might be familiar with them. And one of the top 10 rules that God set apart was this, you shall not not covet your neighbor's whatever. To covet means to crave, to possess, or have something. To, to see it, what someone else has, and to want it, to desire it. And all the way back before social media or even newspapers or 24-hour, God looked at his people and he said, you know what, one of the rules right up there with you shall not murder, by the way, one of the rules, the top 10 rules will be this one. Don't look at what your neighbor has and desire it. So this is nothing new. Thousands of years, uh, we have, as people, looked at what our neighbor has, and then we looked at what we had, and we thought, I'd kind of like that instead. Of course, now with social media, this is taken, has been multiplied, and our tendency has been multiplied. Back in the day, in the time of rural villages, when, uh, and even nomadic people, when the Ten Commandments were given, you, you might look, uh, really kind of compare yourself to the two people next to you. You're in your little tent in your hut, and you look at the person next to you, you're like, oh, I kind of like that hut. And, or you look at the person next to you, and you think, you know, that'd be kind of nice. But now with social media and the internet and blogs, and literally blogs about literally any topic you can imagine under the sun, we're able to look at millions of other people's tents and huts and things, and we think to ourselves, oh, wouldn't it be great to have that? I was talking to my friend, uh, Taylor Olmstead. He's uh, getting his master's degree in, um, I don't remember the exact title, but it's social technology stuff. He's, he's studying this stuff. He, he studies it. And so I was talking to him to get some insight really into this series. I wanted to get someone's kind of a, a little bit more educated perspective. And, and I mentioned that I wanted to talk about the ways in which we compare each other and how social media um, really kind of plays out and influences how we compare ourselves to other people. And his first response to that really struck me. He said something along the lines, and I paraphrase. He said, oh, comparison. That's so unique. Uh, 
And it's so unique to each person because it's rooted in our insecurities. Huh. That got me thinking, and it sounds obvious, but it's important for me to realize. What I struggle with and how I compare myself to other people isn't probably how you compare yourself to other people or what you struggle with. So I'm a pastor, obviously, uh, of a church plant, about three years old, and uh, we planted in a city where there happens to be hundreds of church plants, so it should not surprise you that I struggle with comparing myself to other churches and pastors I see on social media. If they are successful, I might get envious or defensive. If they're able to do things I know I'd never be able to do, I might get a little jealous. And when we don't feel as successful or our numbers don't compare to other churches or the success of other pastors, I can even get sad. I've been depressed at times and feel like a failure. You know, there's this old saying, I don't know who said it first, but it's worth remembering. Comparison is the thief of joy. And it is. I could be so excited about what, what I have right here, what God is doing in my life, what I've been blessed with. But as soon as I start holding that up to something someone else has, I'm not going to be excited about it anymore. The joy is gone. Comparison is the thief of joy. But the thing that we compare ourselves to other people is always, always a little different. I struggle with that. And, and I struggle with a lot of other things. But knowing that everyone's struggles are unique, I wanted to hear from you. So I posted on social media a survey asking people what they struggle with uh, regarding comparison and jealousy and, and envy. And I got a lot of comments. So thanks to everyone who took time to share. Uh, I imagine it included some people in our community as well as those who are just friends of mine on Facebook. But here are a few of the, the things that, that represents, the, I think, the breadth of what people said. I, I want to read quite a few of these because I think it's really important for us to hear each other, to hear what's really going on. And these are anonymous, and so some of them are vulnerable. And I think it's really important to feel. So I invite you to just receive these, try to get yourself into an empathetic state and to hear what people are struggling with. And maybe these are one of these things you struggle with as well. So here's the first one. Other people's, uh, one of the categories is other people's success or careers. Here's, here's some of the quotes that I saw. Someone said, uh, you know, they, they compare themselves or are jealous when they see people that have dream jobs and college degrees. This one person went on to say about how they never were able to finish college and don't have a degree. And it makes them feel, you know, compared to other people a certain way. Someone else said, I struggle with comparing myself to others uh, with uh, my same age who seem to be further along in their careers. And isn't that, isn't that the case? You know, there's a sense that uh, if somebody um, has, you know, been doing this for 30 years, you'll give yourself a break. But when you see someone your same age and they're like, they feel so much further along than you, you're like, oh, geez. Others uh, kind of had to do with people's uh, wealth and their stuff. Uh, here's what some of the quotes said. Um, seeing people that have lots of money spending lavishly when I was raised poor. Someone else said big houses, fancy clothes, brand new cars. And I love their little pair, uh, the parentheses here, listing them and realizing how meaningless these things are, yet they trip us all up. And yes, they do. Even when you lay him out, he's like, oh, that's not really what life's about. Well, it isn't, but yet when you see it and you kind of wish you had it, it trips us up. The next, uh, another thing someone said in this category, I said, someone said, I find myself drawn into consumerism, especially with Instagram. Even though I, I truly, even though I don't truly want to buy the things they have, I compare my belongings, clothes, furniture, kitchenware, et cetera, and begin feeling discontent with my situation. 
comparison is a thief of joy and it'll be the death of contentment when we compare one another. And, that, and this person's naming that. The other person, this was one of my favorite ones. They said, uh, they said quite a bit of other things, but th- this is one quote I pulled out. They said, uh, guest rooms. They're jealous of people with guest rooms. Meal prepared lunch, uh, p- meal prepped lunches, blankets and pillows in the same color scheme, but mostly guest rooms. And I'm like, yes, you know you have reached adulthood when you're like, man, I just wish I had a guest room. Uh, for me, it's front porches. I'm, I'm like, I don't know when I became an adult, but I had, it happened when I was like looking at other people's porches and like, that is a nice front porch. I wish I had that front porch. But, but this is the type of thing we wrestle with. So the next category, uh, not a surprise uh, because we live in such an image-based society. Um, a lot of people ha- talk about physical appearance. So this one person person was pretty candid. It says, usually my workout groups make me wish I had that bod. LOL. I'm pretty, I'm in pretty decent shape, but it is depressing to compare. Do, do you hear that? It's depressing to compare. Comparison is a thief of joy, even though they're in decent shape. Plus I see my flaws while I can look at someone else and think they look great. Isn't that true? Ah. Oh. You know, you look at someone else, you like, you overlook all their flaws, but you have such a hard time look, overlooking your own. Also, someone, uh, many people, not many, but out of the 15 responses, three different people use the word thinner somewhere. Comparing themselves to people who are thinner, wishing they were thinner. Next category, this one actually kind of surprised me. It had to do with relationships. I was surprised that so many people were candid and honest that they're not just comparing themselves to the way people look or to the jobs they have, but to the quality of their friendships. This is deep, vulnerable. Someone said, comparing friendships with others uh, that, are mutual, that I'm mutually friends with. Someone else said, reaching out to others and forming relationships has always been difficult for me. Social media makes it very obvious where and how other people are connected. It can be too easy to compare my own social life with others and then feel left out. And it's funny because we create social media accounts to connect with other people, but, but here, and this is probably more often the case, it, it's not actually helping someone connect. It's actually just reminding them that they aren't. Someone else said this, that pre-COVID, I would see friends hanging out with each other, but for one reason or another, we had drifted apart. I feel sometimes that they were choosing other people over me, and I don't understand why. Whew. That's real. Maybe you felt the same way. There was a number of uh, quotes uh, having to do with motherhood. Here were two, another sort of vulnerable, deep category people being honest about. Someone said, I'm 30 weeks pregnant and have at least 15 friends who are also pregnant. I, could, uh, I find myself comparing my pregnancy to theirs a lot. They went on to talk about that. Uh, I've never been pregnant myself, um, but I have heard that this is a real thing. This is a real struggle. There's a certain expectations around pregnancy to feel or to experience or to have certain opinion, you know, an experience. But every, you have to realize with all of life, and pregnancy is just a microcosm of it, our own experience is our own experience and it might not be like anyone else's, but this is something we struggle with. Another person said kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, but related, my struggle is infertility. And I'm jealous of people who can have biological children naturally and without having to spend literally tens of thousands of dollars uh, for medical intervention or adoption. I also struggle empathizing with women who are upset that they can't conceive their third or fourth child when I would be over the moon to be blessed with just one. This also makes me feel like a loser and an outsider, like motherhood is this club that I am not worthy of. 
I know as many people in our community at various times have struggled with infertility. I know as many people, uh, many friends who've struggled with this. And that, this last line really stood out to me as I was reading through this. And it kind of stood out in some of the stuff I, I studied and will share today. When we see someone doing something or having something that we wish we had, and maybe we've, it's the only thing we ever wanted, or, or when we see someone who is, who is something that we wish we were, it can feel like that there's this club that ju- we're just weren't invited to, that we're not worthy of. And that's a big word there, isn't it? A club I'm not worthy of. I think we all uh, struggle with this in one way or the other. Um, If you don't, I don't want to know because I will compare myself to you. But uh, I think there are things that that we can do, both online and in person, that can do a lot to help. So what do we do about it? Well, I have some ideas, that, and I think a few of them might even help. I'll share some today, and I'm going to share some next week. But these aren't my ideas, of course. They're going to come from the New Testament, specifically in one of Paul's letters. So today and next week, I want to talk about Paul's letter to the Galatians. Because I think the things that they're struggling with there actually connect really well with what we've talked about so far today. And then next week, I'm going to kind of look at the end of Paul's letter. He offers some ideas on how to help us deal with this stuff. And and I think his advice to to what it means to be in Christian community is extremely valuable for overcoming our tendency to compare. So if you have your Bibles today, you can go to Galatians. I'm going to be jumping around a lot today. And next week, I'll be spending a couple, uh, some time in Galatians 6. But today, I'm just going to be jumping around. You can find it in the back of your Bible if you want to follow along. Uh, It'll be uh, right before Ephesians. So here's what you need to know about Galatians. Paul planted a church in a region known as Galatia in an area that is now modern-day Turkey. So here's a map. Um, You can see Jerusalem uh, with the red dot. That's kind of Israel, that area there. That's where Jesus started the church. And Paul takes Jesus's message uh, throughout the Roman Empire to a variety of churches. Most of the New Testament letters represent these churches. Well, the yellow area wasn't a town. It was a region. There was a church in that region made up probably of people in a variety of uh, smaller towns that were a part of this church in Galatia, in that yellow area somewhere. Now, the church uh, that Paul planted was built on a really simple truth that's essential to our conversation today. And the truth is this. God's grace is all you need. Very simple, very clean, easy to remember, easy to understand, not complicated. You don't have to do anything else but believe and receive God's grace. But here's what happens. You have to remember that the first Christians uh, were, were Jews. They were Hebrews, uh, people of Israel. Jesus was, of course, a Jew. Uh, same with all of the, the original 12 disciples. Now, the people in Galatia and other parts of the Roman Empire that become a part of the church, they weren't. They weren't Jews. They were, what, they were Gentiles, what we call Gentiles, uh, like myself. And so some people who were Jews believed that to really become a Jesus follower— To become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew, which means all of the men in the community had to be circumcised. Not particularly popular, you know, doctrine amongst adult men. Uh, Then from there, once the men were circumcised, you had to obey all the rules laid out in the Hebrew Bible or what we call the Old Testament. So special holidays like Hanukkah or Festival of the Booths or Passover, et cetera, and all of these other rules like uh, what you were allowed to eat. So so many rules around what, what is kosher and what is not. Now, there were people who believed that you weren't really a Christian unless you did all of those things. 
And it was a group of teachers like this that showed up to the church in Galatia. Now they had, up to this point, the church had believed that God's grace was enough. And now they're being told, actually, you got to do all this other stuff too. And if you don't, you're not really a Christian. Now, can you imagine how that would uh, make you feel? Some of you probably don't have to imagine. You've been told stuff like that. You've been told that you have to do X, Y, and Z before you're a real Christian. That happens still in churches today all the time and for a lot of different reasons. But Paul in his letter is dealing with this issue. He says it right at the beginning in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace, key word there, you're leaving behind the one who saved you by grace and returning to a different gospel, which he would say is not a gospel at all. It's no good news. In other words, some kind of teaching uh, that suggests that grace wasn't enough. That's, that's what they're now following. So these people, these teachers, they, they pile all of these things onto the people of Galatia, and the people went with it. Now, why would they leave behind this simple truth that God's grace is enough? Why would any of us uh, leave behind, like, if God's grace is enough, why add to it? Well, we have to ask a very similar question. Why would any of us be tempted to believe that we have to have a bigger house or a better house or a better car or more stuff or a different job or a college degree to feel worthy? When do we get tricked into believing that? Well, probably the same way the Galatians were tricked here. The book of Galatians is this letter that Paul is writing, so we only get like one side of the phone conversation. But even though we're only seeing that one side, we can pick up on what Paul says. We can infer a couple of things about these so-called leaders that are teaching this different kind of gospel um, and uh, which are trying to convince the people. And they actually are able to convince people, and here's why. Here's what they were like. First, these teachers were super impressive. Chapter 2, verse 6 says this. He's, Paul's talking in this letter. He says, as for those who were held in high esteem. This is a formal way of saying those people that you thought were pretty great. But Paul's referring to the teachers it, it seems everyone looked up to. You, you see hints of this throughout the whole letter. That They were the kind of people everyone admired. Well, I mean, everyone just thought the world of them and they were so cool and they were, you know, and what they were saying, you know, had to be true because they were so cool and they were way cooler than Paul. And Paul talks about this a lot in his letters. Paul did not think of himself as particularly cool. He wouldn't probably make a very good mega church pastor. He just wasn't cool enough. He was more like uh, that strange professor in the back of a Christian ed department that whose lectures no one understood. Like that's Paul. He wasn't an influencer, but these teachers were, they were ancient pre-social media influencers. And people were convinced what they said because something about their personality made you want to be like them. They were admired, which leads us a, a very simple lesson right here. Be careful who you admire. You hear me. Be careful who you look up to because you will strive after the people you admire. In fact, think about it for a second. Who do you really admire? In a world of social media and, uh, and celebrity pastors and celebrity do-gooders, be careful who you admire. Because if you admire someone that's just a personality online, you're not really admiring a real person. Here's my advice. 
And this can do a lot for how we struggle with comparison. Never admire or look up to or try to be like somebody that you haven't had dinner with. Simple rule. Have you sat down, broke bread with them? If you haven't, you are not admiring a real person. You, there's a good chance you're just admiring a personality. And people spend an immense amount of money and pay people full time to shape personalities online. And that's what you're admiring. And that is not attainable. And that is not real life. Admire people that you've sat down, you've broke bread together, and you know, you know what they are afraid of. You know what they struggle with and where their insecurities are. If you're admiring someone who you can't say, I have no idea what they're actually afraid of. I've never actually had a conversation that was mutual with them. I would just follow them online. You're not really admiring a real person. You're admiring a personality that's been crafted and shaped very intentionally. And there's fantastic resources to do that if you wanted to shape an online personality. There's books you can read to do that, and people do. So that's the first one. These people would become admirable. Here's second. They weren't just popular, they were motivated. We see in uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 17, it says, These people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that they may have zeal, so that you may have zeal for them. So these influencers were motivated. They, they had hustle, as we like to call in the world of social media and startup entrepreneurial. They had zeal, which means they had this great energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of a, some kind of cause or objective. But their objective wasn't necessarily good. It was simple, but it wasn't good. They wanted to win people over. They were zealous for the people's attention. They were zealous for them. That's what it says. They wanted everyone in Galatia to be impressed by them. They wanted, you know, to increase engagement. Their goal wasn't to help the church. Their goal wasn't to serve their people. Their goal wasn't to make life better for the Galatians. Their goal was to increase their number of fans. Now, if this doesn't sound like social media, I'm not sure what does. You know, if, if you're going to look up to someone, if you're going to be influenced by someone, I, I encourage you once again to think about who those people are. My hope is, is that you're, you're not falling prey to someone whose primary goal is to make a living off of the fact that you're a follower of them on Twitter. These are not role models. So if you're going to be influenced by somebody, let it be someone that you know. So first, um, they're, they're popular. They're also extremely motivated. And finally, they were also persuasive. Chapter 5, verse 7 says it like this. Paul says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. He says they were doing so good. And who came in and tripped you up? Who, who diverted and, and cut in on you and, and, and stopped your ability to run this race of God? How did they do it? They didn't have necessarily these clever algorithms or Alexa listening to our conversations, but, but to win us over to a particular product. But they were persuasive in other ways. They had an objective and they wanted to convince you of something. So here's the thing. Most things you read online... Even if it's not on social media, you know, blogs, whatever. Most things you read online will be trying to persuade you. And I personally, when, when, some, when I see something that's persuasive, I, I tend, you know, to, red flags need to go up. Because there are things that are true. And then there are things that are extremely persuasive. And one does not equal the other. In fact, when something comes across as extremely motivated, extremely persuasive to try to convince me of something, I'm actually worried it's not true. Because if it was true, did it, would it need to be so persuasive? 
So here are these teachers. They, they were impressive. They were held in high esteem. They were popular. They were super motivated. And they were persuasive. And they came with a simple message. Believing in God wasn't enough. God's grace wasn't enough. You needed to do more. You needed to be more. You're not enough. They weren't saying that, but that's essentially the message they were communicating. They were trying to tell people, you're not enough. You need to get it together. You need to do better. You need to change your whole way of living. And Paul immediately started to see the fallout of this kind of teaching. He describes it in the letter. I'm going to pick out three things that he sees as a fallout from people listening to this kind of teaching. Uh, the first one, everyone was thrown into confusion. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. In 5.10, uh, it says, the one, who is thrown, the one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. The Greek word being translated here as confusion can also just mean trouble or being agitated. It literally means to be put into motion. Um, but, but here it's really used to shake up or stir something that should remain still. It's as if the, the church here with this message, with this false teaching, all this pressure and all this popularity and all this persuasion was shaking the church up and throwing them into chaos and confusion. Do you, have you ever felt like you're just being pulled in a thousand different directions? You know, you, you need to do this and you got to get this done and you, these are your life goals and how far have you gone at those and, 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 and have you done enough to accomplish those goals? Well, stop. Slow down. You're all jumbled. Ask yourself this. Who convinced you that you needed to do this or you needed to do that or you needed to have more done on your life goal or, or you had to get more accomplished? Who told you that? Is it possible you don't? Is it possible you just need to slow down and let some things go? So first, this message about having to do more stirred everyone up and produced this kind of confusion of like, what am I doing? Second, they started being consumed by, by more and more about what people thought. Paul pushes against this in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of humans, human beings, or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Man, if you want to memorize a verse, this one might be a good one. If you're trying to please people, you might not be a servant of Christ. How many times do we find ourselves making decisions or feeling pressure because you're trying to impress somebody? And here's the, here's the sad reality. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead, but here's the reality. Half the time, we can't even tell you who that person is. Who are you trying to impress? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe when we sit down with a counselor, we'll go all the way back to our family, some child of origin stuff. Maybe it's your, your dad or your mom or, or you're that best friend you let down. It's hard to say, but sometimes we can't even point who we're trying to impress, but we live so much of our life trying to live up to other people's expectations. And that is not what it means to be a child of God, a servant of Christ. The third thing is they started fighting with, with, with each other, which, which given the first two was inevitable. Galatians 5.15 says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Man, if there's ever a verse to describe the world we live in today, it's this, isn't it? 
made possible in part by social media and 24-hour news cycles and the ways we disagree and compare and judge each other. You know, comparison has two evil cousins. On the one side, comparison can produce uh, jealousy. That's that's one direction if you if you want what they have. On the other side, if you, you, you comparison can also produce judgment if you're mad or you think they shouldn't have that. Uh, a lot of times, we can be really jealous of the people we judge. And so they're just biting and devouring each other as they get into this game of who can do more to be a follower of Jesus. Instead of loving each other, they start competing with each other. They, they become at odds with each other. If, if you start to fight for approval, it's only a matter of time until this happens. Here's the thing. When God's grace is the only requirement for belonging, we can relax and just accept and love each other. But when we add anything else to it, when we add a list of things you have to do first before you belong or a list that, you have, that, that that'll determine your value to this community, and if you are able to do this, you're more valuable, and if you can't do that, you're less valuable. If we add anything else to the list to determine our place in God's community, then it's only a matter of time that we start using those things to measure and compare and to rank and to compete and devour one another. Now, that's not how the church is supposed to be. That's not what God's community is supposed to look like. But that's what had happened in in Galatia because of these impressive influencers who were making everyone else feel inferior. Now, here's why I share this. If you go back to those things that we tend to compare ourselves with, I'm guessing that 90% of them, that 90% of the time, that, that someone or something came along and convinced you that that was necessary. Someone with influence and persuasion and popularity, maybe a person or maybe society at large or forces you don't even understand, but somewhere along the lines, you became convinced that you needed that thing to be complete. And it's no mistake, friends, because millions of dollars are spent to try and convince you that you will not be complete until you get that thing, whatever it is for you, the house, the car, the job, the success, the church, the child, that you won't be complete until you become rich or become a mother or become a successful leader. Billions of dollars are spent trying to persuade you. Now, trust me, those influencers in Galatia uh, threw a church into a downward spiral of confusion and comparison and infighting, and they did not have the budget companies have today. So let me say this. All of those super impressive, persuasive messages that are tripping you up, they are not from God. They aren't the gospel. They can't be trusted. They're just going to trip you up. That pressure we feel, the insecurity we feel, I'm not doing enough. I'm not far enough along. I'm not like that. Those are not coming from God. God looks at you right now right where you are, and God says, in Christ, you are already complete. You're already whole. That's the gospel. God's grace is enough. In the name of Jesus, you already belong, and you won't become who God wants you to be if you're trying to be someone else, because you weren't created to be them. You were created to be you, and whatever it is that God has, the life that God in the all of the challenges and messiness, it's, 
That's what you got. There's this great show on Apple TV. Uh, I, I happen to like it called Ted Lasso. It follows this American football coach who's just super positive, and he goes to England to coach soccer. There's this scene where the coach is standing outside the football club, the soccer club, whatever, uh, talking to the girlfriend of one of the players. It's all-star player. He's kind of full of himself, and she's asking. Uh, he's not out there yet, but he's asking the coach and the the owner. You know, oh, if you had to choose between being a panda or a lion, which would you be? Would you be a panda or a lion? You can maybe answer the question for yourself. Would you be a panda or a lion? Now, the coach, who's, you know, he's kind and humble and generous, he's, uh, he says he'd be a panda. The owner and the girl he's talking to, they're like, no, I'm definitely a lion. Well, the girl's boyfriend, this all-star player, comes out, and uh, he's a bit full of himself, and they ask him, would you be a panda or a lion? And he says, I'm me. Why would I want to be anyone else? And, and I love Ted's response. Uh, I got a clip of the video. Uh, let's, let's, let's play that. He's got to hop over Hi, babe. Mm. Here. Keys. Hey, Jamie, what would you rather be? A lion or a panda? Coach, I'm me. Mm -hmm. Why would I want to be anything else? I'm not sure you realize how psychologically healthy that actually is. Mm. Cheers. Night, Porter. Wow. He's a lion. Definitely a lion. Mm -hmm. Your panda's... He, uh, he says, I'm me. Why would I want to be anyone else? And the coach says, I'm not sure you realize how psychologically healthy that actually is. Friends, you're you. Why would you want to be anyone else? Man, it's one of the healthiest places you can, healthiest places you can arrive. It's like that old saying, I don't know who said it first, but be you, everyone else is taken. As a Christian, we are saved not because of what we do or what we have or how popular we become. As a Christian, we are saved because we trust what Jesus has to say about us. We trust that God has a purpose for us right here. We trust that God has given us a certain set of talents and perspectives and opportunities that need to be offered to the world. And so we offer them. We offer ourselves generously and vulnerable because we know that God created us and we have something to offer that no one else does. And we'll never figure out what that is and we'll never really be able to offer it as long as we're worried about what other people have and what they're offering. So in those times that we don't love ourselves, in those times where we feel like we don't have a part to play or we feel nothing's working out or, or the things that we always wanted to be just isn't falling into place, remember this. God hasn't left you. God created you and, and God has amazing things for you. And there's nothing better for us than to leave behind all those things we sh think we should be doing and all those things we sh think should be true about us. And we just come to the cross and we say to God, here I am. One of the most powerful things you can say. Because when you come to the cross and you, and you look at, and you just say, here I am, you literally only have to offer you. Not what your neighbor has, not what your neighbor accomplished, not what your, the person you admire on social media. You can't offer that. It's not yours to offer. When you come before the cross and you kneel before God and you say, here I am, use me, you are the only thing you have to offer. And God wants to do something amazing with you.
Not with someone else. Well, I mean, yeah, with somebody else, but like that's their thing. God's, God's working on that with them. God wants to do something amazing with you. So Paul goes on. He gives some amazing insight on what Christian community should look like, free of comparison. We're going to look at that uh, next week. I encourage you. I wanted to cover it today, but obviously we've run out of time. Uh, so I've, I'm, we're just going to spend some time next week with it. If you're wondering, okay, this sounds compelling. I'm interested. Uh, what does that mean? I encourage you, come back next week. We're going to talk about some really basic Christian community stuff that will help dismantle our tendency to compare, to compete, to be jealous and envious of what other people are doing. So I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. Lord, allow your word to uh, speak to us. Allow the letter of Paul and... the wisdom and challenges he offered to Galatia to to be made fresh in a a new way in our hearts. Lord, help us to lay aside all of those things that we tend to measure ourselves and compare ourselves and just humbly bring ourselves what we have, whatever it is, all of our brokenness, all of our pain, all of our mistakes, we just, we give it to you. God, we know that you can do something amazing with so little. You can make something beautiful out of something that's broken. Help us, Lord, in your name.